Yeah, give, give him a, you know, eh, give him, a, give him a little bit of a beating. <laughs> it's, it's good for character. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil T. Robot himself. Yeah, I am here. And Peter overslept or is hungover, or both, but it, he's not yeah. here. Yeah, could be, could be any of the above. That's okay, because he couldn't use the Adam and Eve code anyway. So if you guys want to help out the show, you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Let's take a look at film versus society, Cecil. You know how film always reflects society, and society reflects film. Now, this isn't the same as, like, when we talk about trends, like, you know, all the virtual reality movies that came out at the same time when virtual reality came out. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about how each one reflects the other. They reflect the fears. They reflect the anticipation. Film is part of society as society is part of film. For instance, horror traditionally has always been a pushback against the societal ills of whatever is going on at the time. Whatever is going on in the world usually ends up coming through in a lot of horror. For some reason, horror is... If you go back and look at, I would say probably starting around the 70s or so, but if you would start looking at horror movies that came out and then look at what was going on in the world at the time, a lot of the horror movies would have a very good representation of what was happening in the world. This was influenced by this. This is the reason why this exists. Even touching, I would say, as far back as uh, the original Night of the Living Dead. Oh, it goes back way before that. For instance, like the Universal Monsters. The Universal Monsters were very much a product of and a solution to, I don't mean solution, but an escape from the Great Depression. Those came out right after the Great Depression, where people wanted an escape. They wanted anything. And the gangster pictures obviously were doing pretty well, but they didn't want the gangster pictures because that was really happening. They wanted an escape. And so you could escape into vampires and werewolves and and undead creatures and things like that. The Universal Monsters, if you look back, you look at like the townspeople in those and the way the, the people act. You look at Dr. Frankenstein's experiments, things like that. This is very much an answer to the Great Depression. This is, the old Universal Monsters are rooted in the Great Depression. Abs- you're absolutely right. You never thought of it like that, huh? I didn't, uh, I didn't think about that. Uh, I was thinking that it was more of a of a recent trend especially in horror but uh yeah it's something that i haven't i haven't entirely done my homework on so uh it it wouldn't be the first time that i'm wrong about something well but then you also like as you move into the 1950s look at all those atomic movies and i'm not even talking about the ones where where they're going to space you know rocket ship xm stuff like that i'm just talking about all the giant bugs and the atomic monsters and all this that was the fears of the atomic age we were we were moving into 
a new era in America. Whenever you're moving into something, something dark, something that you don't know, it's reflected in film. All of those movies were about, they weren't about what good atomic energy can do for us. Look at all of those movies, Cecil. They were about the fears of what happens if in relation to atomic energy. Oh yeah. Well, the hell, Godzilla or, you know, Gojira. Was, was majorly, uh, the fear of, uh, of atomic energy. Godzilla's a little different in the fact that he, that was less of a fear and more of a response to us dropping a couple of atomic bombs in Japan. That, that, Godzilla was more of a response where something like the giant tarantula is more of, this could be the future. Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm greatly, you know, reducing it down to the point, but yeah, it's, I mean, it is, it is the fear of, you know, what could happen in a grander, you know, it's like, all right, well, you know, nuclear bombs are already a terrible thing, but now this is also something that, uh, you know, could come uh, from that. And uh, they were using that as a, it's kind of funny that it's become such an iconic thing that was born of just devastation. Well, yeah, let's stick with the atomic movies of the fifties, the American. American stuff right now. Can you think of one where atomic energy doesn't hurt something and then yet we always, well almost always, defeated the monster created by errant science? We always, almost always dropped bombs on them, usually nukes? <laughs> yeah, I, I can't think of of any i mean there's there's been just so many giant monster movies and giant uh, insects and and just uh animals going nuts because of uh radiation or, or toxic waste we we usually don't defeat them with love well but there's also something to be said about those movies in that and I'm not just talking about the scientific inaccuracies of radiation making something grow giant. Because, you know, if comic books have taught me anything, radiation means superpowers instead of giving me cancers. Because the, there, there's always this ignorance that goes along with it. Like, the, the people making these movies are not scientists. The people making, you know, Tarantula and, and you know, the giant mantis and that, these aren't scientists. And they accidentally helped spread so much misinformation. I mean, I just made that, that joke about, you know, comic books should give me, you know, based on comic books, I should get powers from it look at what happened then when something like on the beach came out and they went oh this is what actually happens when you get irradiated have you ever read on the beach no i've seen i've seen the movie though and it's it's just i mean i have the book and i i just i keep looking at it and i'm like i know this is like the movie ruined my day the, that so ending, i know the book when, when, the, when uh, the parents have to kill their own child because she's too small to be able to take the cyanide pill because the radiation cloud is coming and you're like oh my god that's the darkest shit i've ever read it's one of the most depressing, dark films, books ever. It's just, but I love the fact that it does not pull any punches. It's like, this is, they all know that death is coming. And, uh, it's, it's really, oh, it is a doozy. Whereas if you watch a lot of the atomic movies of the fifties, yeah, radiation's not so bad. It might even be good for you. I would say going in the fifties, you know, it's kind of cool. Really. But that was also reflecting of the times. And that's not even getting into not even the 50s atomic movies, although these always had this shade to them. There was also the Red Scare of the time, too. Look at how so many times in those movies a foreigner was responsible for this or somebody who was not down with America. And it was always the U.S. Army that defeated the monster, Cecil. This was rah-rah anti-commies. There's a lot of that well, in the science fiction movies of the 50s. Well, yeah. 
You know, it was, it was, we were, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of pride in the country. And, uh, you know, going into, uh, a lot of movies like that, it's like they wanted to make it very, you know, yeah, we kicked those commies asses. And that good, commie giant you know? spider that we created. Right. Well, you know. Since society is always reflected in film, you brought up Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead might be one of the most literal, although unintentionally so, literal movies of, of this type. George Romero saw what was happening, you know, us being in Vietnam, us being unable to get out of Vietnam, the protests, the growing hippie movement, the drugs, the free free love movement, all this stuff. Because there was this giant clash between the 1950s style anti-communists, you know, your, your straight-laced, flat-top military guys and the jocks, and these new hippies. And he saw the hippies were winning. Him being a liberal probably wanted them to. And the thing was, he envisioned Night of the Living Dead as a subculture of what was happening in America at the time. A new society is rising up and swallowing the new society. Although in this case, a little more literally than, you know, I think he intended when he actually wrote it. It's all about your time is over. It's now our time. And that's what Night of the Living Dead is basically about. It's a new society. Hell, look at I Am Legend, the Richard Matheson book. That's literally what it's about. Neville thinks that he is destroying monsters. What he doesn't understand is these things have hearts, they have minds, they love their children, they are the new society, and he is the last remnant of what they need to destroy. Which is why when they did the movie, the alternate ending is more along the lines of the book. Now, granted, I didn't think that they handled the, the alternate, alternate ending, ending very well. Ass. The alternate ending blows ass, but it was more of what it should have been. I think it like it the the idea was there. It's just it was done very poorly. It was written by a kid of Goldsman. There's no way it could have been done well. Well, that that goes, you know, that's neither here nor there. What I'm saying is that the the idea was sound. It was just the execution was very poor. And I'm glad they went with the other ending because I would have been pissed if uh, that would have been the original ending that I saw. But uh, but still, it ended up it's it kept but I'm talking the monsters about the book. as monsters, the whole thing. But yeah, going I mean, I'm talking, you know, yeah, back and forth to the movie, which is way more recent. It's uh, it's touching on how uh, we were indeed the monsters and uh, uh and it makes me want to go see the uh the omega man again omega man screws it up too and so, so does so does last man on earth there, there has not been a movie adaptation that's gotten the book right yet which really kind of ticks well, least, me off at least the omega man has uh chuck heston but then you, you've got things like like star trek classic star trek classic star trek about change again this is the late this is you know only two years before night of the living dead it's it's about change look at how multicultural that bridge crew was hell starting in season two they had a russian on board not the height but the middle of the cold war and they have a positive representation of a russian on board this international spacecraft the nuclear vessels that wouldn't come till the 80s <laughs> the the, twi the twilight zone the twilight zone is very much a reflector of the time how many episodes of that were Rod Serling tackling some sort of social ill that was pissing him off at the time. Because in TV back then, you couldn't just make a story about racism. They wouldn't mm -hmm. allow that. But 
if you had a story about racism where it's two aliens that are racist against each other, if you cloaked it in science fiction, I'm not sure if it's the networks didn't notice or they thought, okay, the message is diluted enough that it's two aliens with little antennae and propeller beanies on their heads and that the message is diluted enough. Maybe they just were like, okay, we don't see this as racism because they ain't human. I think uh I think it's probably more along the lines of they were too stupid and they weren't they weren't seeing the subtleties of it which you know it worked out in the favor of the people making them uh you know they did this you know with Star Trek with the guys that were half black on one side half white on the other side uh you know Roddenberry was great for uh for tackling those sorts of issues and yet Roddenberry kept attacking hippies and I'm not even talking space hippie episode with Charles Napier Herbert I'm not even talking that one look at how many times he would attack the hippie ideals in that show he was like super liberal and going we should all love each other but those fucking hippies man well you know i i know people that uh that are super liberal that they also hate hippies so there's a lot of there's a lot there to hate about to hippies. be fair everybody hates hippies absolutely i think that's what they're there for nobody, nobody likes nobody hippies not even hippies no. i mean you, you can only deal with the smell of patchouli for so long oh god yes so much patchouli just wash your hair for once jesus yeah, uh, and, and put away the bean pie, crying out loud. Look at something like Dirty Harry. When Dirty Harry hit in 1971, whether this, I, I'm not so sure this was intended as much as it was as an unintentional answer to a question. Dirty Harry hit in society at the perfect point. This was a time when liberal ideals were starting to take over. I'm not going to say, like in the movie, the criminals have more rights than citizens nowadays, but to a degree, that's what you started to see. Because you started to see all these Supreme Court decisions, you started to see all of these judges that were coming down in a much more liberal way, talking about, which I think is the correct way, that you actually, you know, as a criminal, you have the right to remain silent. You have the presumption of innocence where prior to that remember cops would just bust your head and then make up something and the judge would believe the cops so there was this per there was this perception in society the criminals now have more rights than us when in reality they should have always had those rights they were just never enforced uh give them the old wood shampoo what a little uh plunger up the butt yeah, well, that's taking it a little too extreme, but uh, give, give him a, you know, eh, give him give him a little bit of a beating. <laughs> it's it's good for character. It certainly is. You know, don't do that again. All right, and they won't do that again. But I mean, look at Dirty Harry in a 1971 context. That was my opinion, an erroneous answer, but an answer to that thing. That was, this cop, he doesn't care about your rights. He's just going to shoot your ass. Combination of cathartic uh, catharsism and wish fulfillment. You uh, are getting a guy who, uh, he's a cop who is not... Like he's, he's not going after shoplifters, you know, he's going after violent criminals. And so that's why a lot of movies like Death Wish and, uh, Falling Down and those kind of movies where you end up rooting for what is supposed to be the bad guy, but he's really doing things. He's doing bad things to bad people and therefore it's okay. 
Dirty Harry brings up the question of, so he's now judge, jury, and executioner. He is literally executing people, burglars, things like that, without a trial. They're running from me, so shoot them. What a lot of people didn't realize, Harry's kind of the bad... I mean, yes, the Scorpio killer's a psychopath, and he's a murderer, he's a rapist. Harry's not a good guy in these movies. No, but neither is is Judge Dredd. You know, uh, but which is the big he, problem he, with Judge Dredd in America, American kids, when they started reading Judge Dredd, when he started coming over here in the 80s, they they're like, yeah, Dredd, get him. And it's like, you guys don't realize that Dredd's the bad guy, right? Well, it's more so like they're they're there. Yeah, Dredd, get him as they're sitting in their room, you know, smoking pot, you know, <laughs> It's like, you don't think Dredd's going to be busting down the door. To, you know, it, it's just, uh, it, it is, it's a funny duality of it. But you're looking at it from, again, the perspective of, and I don't even think that, I mean, he's not, he's more complicated because he is, he's doing, he's pushing the law that was provided to him. He's not doing anything illegal. He's doing things that he was granted the ability Which to is do. Like, Whereas Dirty Harry is doing things that are illegal. But th that's what people don't get is that Judge Dredd is a parody, is a satire of Dirty Harry and that Dirty Harry mentality. And yet that was adopted as, this is a good idea. Yeah, I, I think it it just boils down to entertainment, you know. And again, like I said, it's wish fulfillment. You're you're seeing a a guy do something that you could never do. You're seeing a uh, super cop, more or less, going out and executing the bad guys. And you know, there's when you when you see a news article or something about uh, a criminal that did something despicable, and they uh, they either get off on a technicality or uh, you know they're gonna just they're gonna have life in prison and, and possibility get parole there's always the part of you that you was like ah oh, you know if there was if only dirty harry or or judge dread would have taken care of the person but look at how many people are un were unjustly convicted of crimes when the cops just made up the evidence before that where it was just you're black i say you committed the crime so you're doing life Oh, I'm not saying that wrongful imprisonment and, and all that stuff doesn't happen. But what I'm saying in the context of uh, entertainment and escapism, when uh, when you see something like that, it, it kind of boils down to that mindset where you're watching them. Uh, you're watching them get the criminals that deserve it. You're not watching them send somebody to prison that was wrongfully, you know, that was convicted of a crime that they they didn't commit. Well, then look at like the Death Wish movies, as you brought up. They were an answer to at least the first one. Crime in the 1970s, especially in New York, was out of control. The crime stats were astronomical. You actually had a one in five chance of getting mugged every time you walked out of your apartment in New York. And those are asinine crime numbers. Death Wish was sort of an answer to that as as per, like, the Dirty Harry thing. But then also, in real life, you had the Bernard Getz situation by the time Death Wish 2 came about. Bernard Getz was a guy who had been mugged on the subway so many times, he finally lost his temper. So he bought a gun and shot all three of the people who were trying to mug him. Problem is... He had the gun illegally, and he didn't just defend himself. He chased them down when they ran away and shot them in the spine. And people were hailing Bernard Goetz as a hero, someone who's finally taking back the streets. And then the rational part of you goes, do we really want Paul Kersey's out there? Do we, though? 
It's it's such an odd thing because, like you said, crime was out of control. And you had people that were wanting to defend themselves. The problem was you had somebody like Bernie Getz who did not go about it the right way. He had the gun illegally and he didn't just defend himself. He became, you know, the executioner. He chased after them. If you had more people who would get their, you know, get their guns legally, I mean, especially at that point, get the guns legally. And maybe that would make the criminals a little more weary about uh, or leery about going after somebody. Uh, that there was the potential that they might be well, armed. I'm, I'm, I'm um, going to bring up Predator 2 again in a little bit. Look at that scene in Predator 2. Everyone on the train has a gun. Yes. <laughs> and even the cops are like, all right, we don't need, we don't need any rush our Rambos here. Uh, it, but it, it was it was a good showing how you know thing, how things kind of went in the opposite direction. You know, it's like okay, well now now everybody is armed, so it's uh, there. You know, should be needs to be a little bit of a, a, a happy medium. I think the thing was Bernie gets he couldn't have. I don't know the entire. He's a story I've heard many times over the years. I've actually heard him interviewed a few times, and he is definitely a mentally unstable person, which is probably why he had to get the gun illegally in the first place. That he couldn't have gotten the gun legally because uh, he's all there in the head. And uh, the death wishes and all that were very much a response to just how bad crime was in New York at the time. Right. Like people don't people growing up now see New York, you know, in Times Square and there's Elmo out there. You like go back and look at pictures of New York back in the 42nd 70s. Street, man. It's, oh, it was a scary place to be. You hear 42nd Street Pete tell those stories about see all these movies on 42nd Street and, you know, even he was, you know, because he was a tough guy and even he was like, I still had probably a 25% chance of getting stabbed every time I went to one of these movies. <laughs> you know, that's how bad it was. Let, let's go off of crime and we'll go to nuclear energy. Obviously, as nuclear power plants, remember there was all of this pushback with what's going to happen in a meltdown and all this blah, 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 blah. Look at a movie like The China Syndrome. The China Syndrome was considered ridiculous, fear-mongering science fiction. Remember, it bombed its first three weeks in, in its first three weeks of release. And then all of a sudden, Three Mile Island happens. And they're like, hey, that's that China Syndrome thing. Um, shit. Yeah, whoops. You, you couldn't have timed that like that either. There, I mean, it's, it's so funny how that works out, you know? This horrible tragedy happens justifying their movie and making it like, I mean, the, the China syndrome, if not for that, probably would have been just a forgotten movie. There were lines around the block after Three Mile Island happened. And you just kind of ask yourself, what does that say about the public? This movie's stupid. Oh wait, you mean it, it, this could actually happen? I need to go see the movie. Well, I think it. I think it also comes down to the the name. I could think that people would uh, not really. You know, you hear a name like the China. You, you by default you think it's something about China. You know, you don't think it's about uh, you know nuclear disaster. I wonder. Unfortunately, I, I'm not seeing the box office breakdown of it. But I wonder, like, would it was it like you know it bombed the first week, bombed the second week, and then the third week was like number one or something china syndrome only was a hit because three mile island happened yeah that's uh, that that's it's sad but yeah it yeah i don't i got nothing look at like i brought up predator 2 earlier now this might seem weird but remember right in 1990 to early 1991 there was all of these movies the two biggest being predator 2 and marked for death which both came out almost back to back 
you had Jamaican blood gangs, Jamaican voodoo gangs as the villains. Remember, there was like four or five other action movies at the time that did this Jamaican thing. When you look back at it, you go, what was that about? I had a buddy of mine who, uh, he was Jamaican. He lived in Jamaica for uh, a good chunk of his life and then you know moved to the U.S. And so he still had a very thick accent. Predator 2 came out. We're watching that. He's like, what is this shit, man? The, the actual reason that this was, this might sound weird, but this was actually a problem in America at the time. The voodoo, I don't, I'm not going to call them voodoo gangs like they do in the in the movies, but the Jamaican gangs, what happened is Jamaica basically, I, I'm not going to say when they got a new government, I'm not sure about that. They decided to basically empty their prisons and ship them all to America. So we had this giant influx in the late 80s of all of these Jamaican gangs. So Predator 2 and Marked for Death were relevant at the time with Jamaican gangs are now the problem. It's not the mafia right now. It's it's not, you know, it's not La Cosa Nostra. It's not the Mexican gangs. Right now, the Jamaican gangs were a problem in America. And if you look back at that, it was only a couple of years, but that actually was a big problem in America at the time. The Jamaican gangs were sweeping across the country and trying to take over the drug trade. They just couldn't sustain it because, well, the Italians and the Mexicans you know, kind of have a stranglehold on that. Yeah, they, uh, they, they kind of been at it for a, a little longer than them. They have better infrastructure. And better, yes, better infrastructure. There you go. And uh, But it's so weird when you look back at 1990 and you're like, what is with the Jamaican gangs and all of these movies from 1990? Yeah, although, man, Screwhead was a great villain. Villains. Villains, yes. Look at something like how found footage is a pushback. We're going to redefine found footage a little bit here, because Cannibal Holocaust is no longer the first found footage movie. Now that 1972's Other Side of the Wind from Orson Welles has come out, that's now the first found footage movie. Made in 1972, but not released until 2018, that now predates Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, I mean, the that, whole that's, movie that's is tough... found footage. No, but what I'm saying is that it's still, even though it was made before, or even it's not released until but it's still the now. first on a technicality you you have to redefine found phone footage now it's other side of the wind not cannibal holocaust but that's not the kind of found footage we're not talking about other side of the wind or cannibal holocaust style let, let let's cement it even though i know blair witch was not the first of that you know the camcorder style found footage but it was the one that really rooted things into culture when blair witch came out and then all of the blair witch knockoffs came out that is not a coincidence you cannot separate it from the rise of the internet at the time. People were getting their news from seeing video. The, you know, you had all of these hidden video shows coming out on TV. A current affair and inside edition were in hard copy where, where, you know, all of these, these hard video, you know, like the, the, the crappy second or third generation videotape kind of thing. Those were everywhere. Found footage as we define it now, I think was really a pushback. This is the new media. This is how we get our media now. It's not slick. It's not overproduced. It's not edited. We're getting it. It's like it's like a weird rawness. And I don't think you can separate that with the rise of the Internet. Absolutely. Um, I mean, to a certain degree, also, granted, the majority of them were fake, but uh, like Faces of Death and all that. You had the fascination of, okay, well, here is... 
this thing that's com- this movie that's comprised of people dying more or less and you're watching just the it's edited but the raw unfiltered here is this as it's being presented and quote unquote reality yeah quote unquote reality and there are i don't remember my exact statistics but i believe it was something like 40 percent of all people thought that the blair witch was real i mean they thought that the you know what happened the movie like, the movie they didn't you know not not the witch itself but you know the what we saw they thought was real uh they thought they were going in and watching the final hours of these three teenagers goes to show uh, a lot of the power of marketing too i mean they they had the the, the, the video film was on this brilliantly marketed Oh, they put it on the internet uh, at at colleges, and colleges were passing them around like it was this. Oh, have you seen you know this this thing about these three kids that went and got lost? And, and then they put out the uh, the the thing on the Sci Fi Channel, and I mean, by the time it actually got released, I mean, it was a fever pitch. Like I've talked about it, I did a numerous videos on the Blair Witch, and I'm like, you're looking at it from the perspective of now. Like back then, it was you know it was monumental. There it, were it was it just, marketing genius as much as. I do not like that movie. It was marketing genius. It really was. And I mean, and it was it just enormous. It was uh, it was a landmark film. And again, it was not the first found footage film, but much like how Doom is not the first first person shooter. It is the one that a lot of people credit with the explosion of the genre. So with found footage being created before the Blair Witch, but the Blair Witch Project was what exploded it into the mainstream. But then let's go back a little bit to earlier in the 90s. I brought up like hard copy inside edition of current affair. I'm sure you remember those, those, those yeah, trash well, shows. Yes, the current affair. Current affair. Natural born killers was the pushback to that. That was the making superstars out of killers, out of horrible people. Go back and watch that. Yes, the host might always talk about what scumbags these people are. They made heroes. Out of killers, out of rapists, out of just the worst people out there. Natural Born Killers, the movie, is basically a pushback of the video era serial killer. It's one of the things now that we're still dealing with whenever there's some psychopath like the the New Zealand shooter and they put out like a manifesto. Don't put out their name. Don't put out like, you know, all like because all that does is glorify them for the next psychopath to imitate. So that I mean, psychiatrists have said that, you know, the last thing that any of these news organizations should be doing is showcasing all of this stuff. All, you know, it, it ends up glorifying them. And they don't care because they want to get the ratings, so they'll push it, you know, as dramatically as they can. But all it's doing I, is I remember, just emboldening the next lunatic. Remember when the Virginia Tech shooting happened? I was working in an NBC station at the time, and I remember when they got a hold of his manifesto, and there was this giant discussion about whether they should publish the manifesto on the news that night. It actually came down to the the news director saying, I don't want to do this. But then someone pointing out to him, probably rightfully so, I don't agree with it, but rightfully in the factual sense. So, well, ABC, CBS, and Fox are going to do it. If we don't, they're going to kill us in the ratings. So it's this whole, you're only as good as the least sleazy person in your group. And I remember going, "What? Are, why are we even discussing this? Well, it's what the news has become. Exactly. But you look... If it bleeds, it leads. Look at... Natural Born Killers, 
that is a pushback not only to the glorification of the serial killer, but also the video age, the home video age. Not just because of the way Oliver Stone directed the movie with all the different film stocks and everything, which I personally think is absolutely brilliant. I think the film looks amazing. That is sort of in a pre-found footage way. Now, remember, I'm referring to found footage in the Blair Witch sort of way, not the Cannibal Holocaust other side of the witch sort of way. Natural Born Killers is really also about the video age. There's video everywhere of what Mickey and Mallory do. What ended up making them superstars. Like they, uh, people were filming, oh my God, I can't believe I'm being attacked by, you know, it was like, it was almost like they were meeting a rock star. But it's like, no, you're you're just meeting two, two psychopathic criminals. Exactly. And then you have whole genres that are pushbacks to societal ills. Black exploitation is a big one. Black exploitation was black people are not being represented on film as anything more than servants or victims. And black exploitation I, I consider Sweet Sweet Back the first real black exploitation movie. There are others who say it's not. Okay, but I, I'm going to cement Sweet Sweet Back as the first one. This was about, no, motherfucker, we can be the hero, too. I mean, the... Well, okay, the, hero's not so- the right word, because, you know, Sweet Sweet Back, Superfly, and, you know, they're kind of scummy, but you know what I mean, the the, the, the protagonist. The protagonist, right. They're, you know, the, the hero in, in name. But, I mean, if you look at Superfly, he... Priest, he recognized that he was in a bad place because that's where he had to be in order to achieve that. But he had other black people that um that were trying to keep him there. And that was why the, the, the writer and director, they had said that largely they had put it as the problems, a lot of the problems within the black community were the black community himself. Like here was this one guy who recognized what he was doing was bad. He was trying to get out of it. And he had all these other guys that were trying to keep him in line. And so that was their statement against that. So he was bettering himself. He was like, I'm going to get all this money. I'm going to screw over, uh, you know, the, the racist police and I'm going to get away from all of you hustlers and I'm going to go out there and make a better life for myself. And they didn't want him to be able to do that. So in that aspect, he was a good guy, but again, doing bad things to achieve his ability to do good. Well, but I'm looking at something like Black Caesar. He's not a good guy. You know, no. a, a lot of the black exploitation quote heroes are terrible people. They're borderline rapists. They will wantonly kill anyone who gets in their way. They are racist because in a lot of those, it's it doesn't matter if the you know the cops to them all racists, all 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 white cops just deserve to die. It is sort of racist, but at the time, you know, I can totally see how that that perception was out there. Black people were, you know, way more than now just being stepped on in almost every way you could see. Black exploitation was a pushback against societal ills, exactly what we're talking about. I love Dolomite. Dolomite's one of the greatest movies ever made. Like how can you not love Rudy Ray Moore? Rudy Ray Moore was a it's, lot of fun. Not the best actor, bad filmmaker, because he really loved that boom mic in the shot. He was not a great filmmaker, but yeah, Rudy Ray Moore was fun. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, so, but, but again, like that's the whole, all the, uh, you know, Disco Godfather and all those, they would not exist if not for, uh, the, the black exploitation movement. And I think well, that was one of the reasons why I did the video on Superfly, because I was like, look, it was like when people were parading about how important Black Panther is, and all that it's like hey let's go back and look at you know the one of the real founding fathers of this did this back at a time when you could not do this and kind it of took film. balls when... to make those black exploitation movies back then i mean the initial
initial ones before they knew that this thing would really work. It took balls to do that because you were really pushing back against Hollywood and Hollywood norms. Yeah, like they didn't want, they didn't want to accept that this kind of thing was, was possible. Like they, it really took, uh, the box office returns before they were like, okay, there really is an audience for this. Like they just kept ignoring the fact that there was a black audience that wanted to see movies with black people in it. So, uh, and sadly he just died today, but, uh, Larry Cohen was huge in black exploitation. He had he had done many black exploitation films and he understood what made them work. And I think it's it's funny because a lot of people thinking, you know, oh, a white director doing black exploitation films, but he did them with a lot of actors who otherwise would have not been getting, you know, work in the same uh, you know, uh, in the same realm. They would have been as as you had said, they were getting uh they were background characters. They were They were servants uh, or victims. Ser- servants or criminals or you know victims and in this he was making them the heroes well then there's another genre is very much a societal pushback maybe well almost as much today as it was when it was created in the early 80s cyberpunk cyberpunk was all about not only the growing technology of computers and whatnot all you have to do to look at cyberpunk and see how much it predicted society is how much of cyberpunk is reality today with cell phones and Google Glass and implants and all. Look at all of the stuff cyberpunk laid down that now is commonplace. But not just that. Look at the underlying message of cyberpunk. Information wants to be free. We need to stop the all. We need to stop the globalization. We need to stop all of the conglomerates from taking over the world. Look at where we are right now conglomerates run everything. Disney owns over 60% of the film industry. There are only four actually major oil companies out there nowadays. And it was funny, in the 70s, there was seven. Look at how many media companies are all owned by the same parent company. Look at how many drug companies, I mean pharmaceutical drug companies, there's like five now, because they're all, you know, yes, you see all these different names, but they all are owned by the same parent company. What is the underlying message of cyberpunk besides information wants to be free? It's fight conglomeration. And uh, another thing that is, is radio. You know, it's everything. God, what do we have now? Clear Channel owns 90% of, of like broadcasting. Look at cyberpunk, that whole genre is about pushing back against society or, or mirroring society, if you will. Yeah, it's doing it through a technological futuristic aspect of it, but it's showing how in the future information is the currency. I mean, that's where you had Shadowrun and all that stuff coming out of hackers and well, who were who were gathering information and because information needed to get out there. I, I I've made the statement that the greatest political prisoner of all time is the truth, and the internet is an answer to that. Because look at how many times, look at how many times the government or a company will say something and then maybe not a hacker, but somebody will leak the actual video or actual audio or paperwork or something that proves them wrong. The truth should be like a virus and it should be spread, but that's not the way the internet should have made things better. It didn't. To me, the internet made things worse. 
because it allowed this, instead of just the dissemination of the fake truth and maybe the reality of all of the sides that go, well, this is what I think happened. Now, I'm not trying to say, Cecil, everyone should not have a voice. I'm trying to say most of your voices are fucking stupid and you're stupid for thinking it. Jokingly, but semi-serious, said that uh, all it did was people said that everybody should have a voice and it proved that maybe some people shouldn't have Well, yeah, because social media, because, well, I think in, in kind of the, the factor of social media and what I'm saying is that when you have people who are narcissists and like they will disseminate something that you said 10 years ago to ruin your life those people should not have a voice if there's somebody out there who is pointing out some you know something legitimate there is a problem here that needs to be addressed yes but not because you misspoke a while ago that that shit is ridiculous and it's getting well, see, out of what hand I'm talking about is sort of like and i'm just going to use the broad term of the news here it doesn't this doesn't mean like broadcast news or anything like that just you know news as in information you've got the the corporation who you get the mainstream news, in theory, you have the internet, which should be alternative sources that would maybe give you a different perspective or different information that maybe Fox News or ABC left out of their report, in theory. In practice, you get Alex Jones, how everything is a government conspiracy, they're all trying to control you, the government can listen to your thoughts through your teeth. Alternative news sources don't actually exist as much as on paper they should. Here's here's the the thing. This was something that came up because uh, we're going we're constantly going through problems with YouTube. But you had a news organization would have uh let's say a video of of something and then they would pontificate upon it. And then you had alternative news uh, channels on YouTube that would have the same video and they would then pontificate upon it. YouTube would demonetize the uh the the alternative news you know news channels and whatnot which basically it doesn't just take away the ad revenue it also pushes them way down in the algorithm and makes it harder for people to see the video but they wouldn't do that with the mainstream news sources youtube being the largest you know, video site out there, it's very important for them to not. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't, like, if somebody is being a complete psychopath, they're, sh I mean, I, it's, it's a slippery slope, well, as they say. Okay. It's very tricky. The, the whole anti-vax movement. I don't care whether you believe in this, although if you do, you're stupid, but anti-vaxxers are dangerous. They are literally causing diseases that we almost had eradicated to rise at an exponential rate. That would be the same as like those, those idiots that are like, you don't need to eat. You can get all of your energy from the sun. Stop eating and drinking and be one with nature. That kind of sh is dangerous and you have to make a call over whether there's freedom of information or you are disseminating dangerous fucking information like all of a sudden yeah, it, all of a sudden if somebody was like you should start breaking open all your thermometers and drinking the silver liquid it'll enhance you and make you superhuman i'm sorry that that to me is dangerous information and that is not on the same level as an alternative viewpoint like Alex Jones. Oh, absolutely. Alex Jones, I think, has every right to speak the stupid shit he does. But he's not news. And there are a lot of people who think Alex Jones is the only one who's telling the truth. And that's the fucking problem I have. 
Well, I think with in the case of somebody like Alex Jones, I think uh, he's somebody who absolutely has every right to speak. But I agree with you uh, on something like the anti-vaxxers. There is nothing good that's coming from and them. And they can be proved uh, to be and, wrong on everything they, and they say. Repeatedly been proven to be wrong. Now, something like the flat earthers, they're not dangerous, but that's the thing. There needs to be a dissemination between what is said that is potentially dangerous, not even potentially dangerous, that is dangerous versus you're silencing someone's opinion on something. And I think that that's a big problem is that uh, they're kind of taking, well, I don't like their point of view, and therefore nobody else should be able to hear their point of view. Well, it's also not saying that they can't have their stupid anti-vax websites and whatnot, but you don't get to be called news when you're an anti, when you push anti-vaxxing. You don't get to be called news when you, when you think that there are Martian slave colonies run by the government on the moon. Alex Jones actually did say that last year. He thinks that, that there, that we colonized Mars years ago and that the government has secretly been breeding slave colonies up there. And this man is like, I'm the only one telling the truth and I want to be led into all of these news conferences because I'm news! No, you're not. Well, the, the the thing with with Alex Jones is what was whenever you you silence somebody like that, all it's making it is so that it's you, you, people are thinking. Well, if you're if they're silencing him, then he must be saying something that they don't want people to hear. If you were to just let it out there and people will see the crazy for what it is or but but now they're more or less it's so cute like, that you think people will actually see that for what it is cecil instead of like what happened at sandy hook where alex jones said it was all a government conspiracy and and a false flag attack and people started harassing the murdered children's parents and telling them show us the truth we know your kids didn't die we heard it from alex looking into things a little bit more a lot of times i'm like well because there's a lot of times where something will be presented and then you go, well, that doesn't sound right. And then you look into it a little bit more and you're like, okay, no, that was complete bullshit. The, the thing is, it's not Alex Jones that is so much the problem. It's the people that believe him. And that's how – because we got to tie this back into movies. Otherwise, we're just making it a political show. Yeah, we're turning into – yeah, we're turning into a political But but, but cyberpunk here. is all about that. It's all about the dissemination of information. Cyberpunk at its core, like I said, the credo is – information wants to be free. Cyberpunk is all about we're going to steal the information and put it out there and in theory the information is what it is. It's not it's bipartisan. It doesn't make a choice. The information is there. But that's not the way that the internet actually works. I think that's one of the things the internet or that cyberpunk got wrong. Well, we're we're getting into a place right now where there's things called hate facts ridiculous it's like no this is this is the fact this is the way that this is presented this is real but because you don't like it it doesn't present things in the way that you want to hear it they're calling them hate facts and it's it's something like that where i think that we're getting into a, a really dangerous time where the truth is being twisted because people don't like what the truth is when you look at movies as part of us as a societal pushback i think the ultimate is easy rider 
Nobody wanted to make Easy Rider. A movie about like these, these hippie motorcyclists going across the country to discover the, what are you nuts? What do you mean it's the biggest independent movie of all time when it came out? What do you mean this beat everything the studios were putting out? You mean there's a market for this? Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson saw, yeah, you know, sort of like with Black Exploitation, hippies want movies about them too. How many stories of there are there of movies like that where it's like the studio didn't want to make this nobody wanted it nobody wanted it and then it comes out and it's the biggest thing ever and it blows away everything that the studios you know had granted there are some movies where it's like yeah this is a terrible idea and nobody should make this but i think that there are a lot of times where maybe if the studio just listened a it's little not even bit just the studio uh, remember easy rider was an independent film even roger corman was like there's no market for this and remember he'd made other movies in this sort of vein before he had the opportunity to make easy rider and he said the biggest regret of his whole career was saying no he didn't put money into easy rider well to be to be on on that note, though, it's probably a good thing that he didn't. I love Corman, but I think that uh, Easy Rider under Corman probably would have ended up being something else. Well, yeah, because... I don't know if it would have been the movie that it ended up being. Right, I agree with that. But then, you know, you look at how then after that, Corman was like, you know what? There really is. Hippies want this stuff. Look at, like, the trip and all this. And that's just not just hippies, but druggies. Cheech and Chong were a giant pushback against the 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 criminalization of pot in the 70s and into the 80s you look at it now Cheech and Chong seems kind of cute and kitschy but at the time they were really being they were really pushing back against society and the people who were like these people potheads stoners nobody wants to see a movie about those people and then up in smoke comes out and you they go okay i guess people do want to see a movie about those people and then they flood the market with like pothead movies <laughs> that's kind of the, the i mean that's I, i've said on numerous times it's hollywood runs on trends and we talked about it last time something that they nobody has any faith in comes out is a huge hit and then there's uh just a cavalcade of knockoffs so whenever something you know they always need that that one to be the hit and then everybody else is like oh my god wait that's what everybody wants and then they end up making that until people get tired of it and they move on to the next thing that ends up being the next big thing well, I, I mean so right now right now it's superheroes and eventually that's gonna die down and it'll be who knows what what the next big thing I will mean, be i know halloween is what we consider the first slasher but it really didn't kick into gear until 1980 and what happened in 1980 ronald reagan friday the Ronald Reagan yeah. was elected president. And I guess I know Morning in America is not tell the 1984 thing, but this was the moral majority. This was we're gonna we're gonna set America back to what it should be. We're getting rid of all this filth. The slasher movement was a pushback against the moral majority. It was a pushback against Ronald Reagan. It was a pushback against conservatism. It really was. I, kn I know a lot of these movies seem stupid and pointless, and a lot of them are, and I'm not saying each movie was a pushback against this, but the movement was a pushback. I don't like talking about politics. Uh, it is my least favorite subject because all it ends up doing 90% of the time is dividing people and making people angry because uh, you're either uh, saying something that they don't well, agree with Well, I can't wait to get not. the hate mail uh, on this but episode. But in the documentary that we're doing, uh, In Search of Darkness, where we're talking about 80s horror films, I've gotten so many responses from people because we had uh, – the trailer had Ronald Reagan in it. And they're like, oh, I was going to donate this until I thought it was politics all over it. And it's like, look. 
this isn't going to be some overly political thing. We are not pushing politics down your throat. What we are pointing out is that in the 80s, Ronald Reagan was the president for pretty much the entire decade. There was a lot of horror that was influenced because of Reaganomics. We had an interview with John Carpenter. He says specifically Ray that that they live was made. He wrote it and did it because of Reagan, because as a pushback against the way that things were against the whole greed is right idea. So if we weren't going to we're talking about the politics of the time and we're not going to be talking and not everything is going to be politics. But if you're not talking about politics of the time and what was going on in the world at the time, then you can't properly talk about how horror was influenced. You you would just be giving half the story. You just would be saying, hey, there's all these movies and they're really great and they're fun, but you're not talking about what went into them, why the world was the way it was at the time, and why the movies were a representation of that. Exactly. Politics and film, especially horror and science fiction, probably more than anything other than maybe political thrillers, you know, by definition, are influenced by politics. They're influenced by what is happening at the time. Something that's happening with the government or or just like something that's happening in society, something that, that you know, like is trending, a weird maybe trend in the music industry is something you take a notice of. Like I said, movies and culture are intricately linked. You cannot take them apart without wrecking one or the other because it does go the other way too. Society is influenced by the movies, but that's a whole different topic. But these things have a symbiosis with one another. You can't separate one or the other at this point. And that's the point of this episode. You have to recontextualize, like when you're watching a 1950s monster movie, into what was going on when that movie came out. This was in the middle of the Red Scare. You can see that. You can see the paranoia. Look at look at the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That whole movie is about the paranoia of the Red Scare and what your neighbors might actually be. They might not actually be. Who they say they are. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, the I would say the vast majority of the best horror and sci-fi films and whatnot are influenced by you know, whatever paranoia is going on at the time. Paranoia will destroy you. As Spider Jerusalem once said, perhaps paranoids are the only ones in possession of all the facts. Well, it's, was it just because you're paranoid doesn't mean there's nobody out to get there you? you go. So where can people find Cecil being super paranoid and just waiting for the hate mail from this episode? Oh, just like relax, everybody. You can find me not being political at goodbadflix.com as well as goodbadflix on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, and 1201beyond.com. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can send all your hate mail or any other comments to 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.